Sam Mulberry here, back on the Live from AC Second podcast feed, and we are continuing with our series of bringing back podcasts from the Autobiography podcast series from the spring of 2014. Um, and today's episode is one that is uh, particularly fun, especially for those who have been listening to the Live from AC Second feed, because this is my uh, podcast interview with Professor Chris Moore. So the sort of early days of the Live from AC Second feed we can we can see here. Um, so this is sitting down with Chris Moore to talk about his intellectual autobiography. This comes from March of 2014. Um, and what's really interesting, I haven't gone back and listened to this whole episode yet, but I do remember that we I think we start pretty early on talking about Star Wars. Um, because it's Chris Moore, and of course that's what you would talk about. Um, and what's funny about it is I'm pretty sure this was before even the title of The Force Awakens was announced, and we're doing some speculation. Um, so it's fun to listen and see uh, how we did in terms of what uh, what The Force Awakens is going to look like. But most of the podcast isn't about that. Like I said, this is the intellectual autobiography for, for Chris Moore. So we get to hear a lot about um, his childhood, living in... Um, pretty small town Ohio. Um, and I just find Chris to be one of my favorite people to work with and collaborate with. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Again, we're going to be dropping these throughout the summer. So, um, we'll see who's up next week, um, on the, on the, the feed. And I just talked with Chris Moore about an hour ago and we hope to have some, some, uh, pods that we actually record this summer, uh, showing up as well. So I hope you're enjoying these. If you are, please email us at live from AC second at gmail.com. Um, would just love to hear your, uh, hear your feedback, hear things you think you would like to hear. You'd be interested in us talking about if we can get a round table together to talk about something. There's faculty uh, around from time to time. So maybe we can pull something like that off. So we'd really love to hear your feedback and your ideas as well. So without further ado, here is my spring 2014 interview with Professor Chris Moore. Hey, welcome to episode two of the Autobiography Podcast. Uh, my guest uh, this time around is uh, political scientist Chris Moore. Um, and this was a, a really uh, fun and uh, kind of weird, weird podcast. We um, started off going in directions I didn't expect, but it all sort of circled back to uh, I think the the idea of autobiography. Uh, Chris is somebody I just really enjoy um, enjoy talking with about teaching, uh, about pop culture, and about everything. Um, and he's somebody who I, I always thought would be a really great um, person to have his own podcast. I've tried to talk him into a podcast. Uh, Chris uh, Chris Gerritsen and I uh, have wanted to do a podcast with him, which we called the Chris Moore Project, which was pretty much um, sit down with uh, with Chris and turn on the turn on the mics and see where they go. Uh, he's a really entertaining guy. Uh, this this. Uh, podcast we sort of dove into um, looking at his story and kind of how he ended up where he uh, where he did here at Bethel what were some of the sort of motivating factors um, kind of who he wants to be as a teacher um, really really interesting stuff and I'll say this about Chris Moore um, and and my other um, my other subject that I'm interviewing this week uh, Amy Poppingo which should be, should be coming out later this week um, these are two Bethel profs that I really think the world of and I think there are people who are sort of ascending here at Bethel. Um, there are people, if I was buying stock in professors, I would be buying stock in Chris Moore and Amy Poppinga. So it was fun to sit down with Chris. Um, and, yeah, um, if you want to email the show, uh, autobiographypodcast at gmail.com, 
autobiographypodcast.wordpress.com is the show page. Um, there's not much there, but if you wanted to go and see a picture of Chris Moore, you could do that. That's about all that's there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I hope you in, uh, hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. <laughs> all right, I'm here with Chris Moore uh, in his office, which is AC, what are we? AC? 213. AC 213. Wow. Right. Okay. Is that a prime number? It's got to be, right? I feel I like think, anything with a 13, a 13 is. like should be, but it's yeah. not, I'm sure. But. Yeah, four thirteen wouldn't right because that's a no, five thirteen wouldn't because that's a you got you add those up and you get a six and there's something a three that, goes that you in carry there. the one. Yeah. yeah, this is our math podcast. <laughs> if, you're, if you were curious, math, math for non math scholars. That's right. Are you using the same intro for all the for the autobiography series in terms of the music? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Yeah. Now, have I talked to you about my relationship with the Decemberists? Not at all. No. Okay, so um, you're using uh, uh, Sons and Daughters by um, uh, by the Decemberists, right? Which is one of my favorite bands. I don't really? Know I, told you that. Okay. I love the Decemberists. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so this is off the Korean Wife. Like I'm familiar with. I I, I know their their whole oeuvre. Wow. Uh, so, so my my use of that song and introduction to that song is really embarrassing. Oh. In, in terms of somebody who's a fan of the band, because I don't I I know nothing about the band. Okay. Um. So so here's where it is. If anyone's curious, mm-hmm. I, um, uh, in the last season of The Office, which I watched it, I'm not sure anybody else did. There's a there's an episode where they within that season they did a backdoor pilot to a show that they wanted to do about the Schrute family that was going to be called The Farm. Okay. Okay, so there's this episode that takes place entirely at Dwight's farm. Sure. And there's a point where they have a little like singing jamboree on the steps and they're singing <laughs> Sons and Daughters. And oh. I never I didn't know the song and I'm like interesting. that's an interesting song. I, I, I bet that's a real song. So then I, I sought it out and um, and the thought was for some people online was like, was this going to be the um, the theme song to the farm if it was oh, a really? show? And it's obviously not a show. There is no Dwight Schrute farm show. Right, but, right, right. But yeah, so so then so I so I liked the song from that. It was sort of stuck in my head. So then I sought out, well, whose song is this? And I listened, and then I sort of fell in love with that song. But yep. that's the entirety that I know of the Decemberists is uh, that song. Okay, well, I could I could uh, gush about the Decemberists. I, I've it's, I, I'm not much of a concert goer, but I've actually seen them in concert. Oh, really? I could tell you about their, you know, kind of their musical journey, that sort of thing. What's so, funny? Go ahead. Well, they're, um, it seems inevit- like it seems inevitably to me that the show that they'll show up on is Portlandia because they're a they're a Portland based band and they fit that aesthetic so much. I mean, if you listen to their songs, it's this sort of hyper literate. Um, vocabulary word dropping. Sure. I mean, the fact that that song has the word dirigible in it is one of of the reasons I love it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I forget where I was going with that, but that's all right. Um, So where where were Shroot Farms going to be? Like, was that still set in Jersey? Oh, Pennsylvania. Oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Sort of... I think quasi Amish country in Pennsylvania. Oh, great. Okay. Yes, yes. They They were some sort of Amish... Amishy type people, but I could sure. tell. I, say, I could tell by the by the one song, like you know how you hear a song from a band or an artist, and you're like, I'll, pro- I'll probably never hear more of them, but like mm-hmm. I kind of dig it. Like I bet, I bet I'd like that record, unless that's yeah. totally different from the rest no, of what they do. No, then it's probably right it's in their wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if I was somebody, as we've talked about, who liked music, I probably would be a fan. Yeah, I, there, there's almost this three on that album. The album's called The Crane Wife, and there's almost uh, I think it's a two or three song. Ver, uh, part of that album, which is a retelling of a Japanese fairy tale about the crane wife, about this, about um, a, f- a fisherman who rescues a crane 
this is the kind of songs they're sure, singing, right? Sure, sure. He rescues a crane. Uh, it's a real lowbrow stuff. Yeah, right? real lowbrow. And then, um, and, and like repairs its wing and sets it free. And then a couple of days later, uh, a woman comes to visit him and he falls in love with her and they get married. And uh, she raises his economic lot in life because she weaves these beautiful uh, silk garments. And, uh, but even as she's weaving them, um, She's like getting sickly, and she's getting uh, she she's she's dying, and when she dies, and, and, but he but he becomes greedy, and he's demand, because he's making some money now. He demands more and more of these silk garments, and it's killing her. She's the crane. She's turned herself into a woman to to love him, and out of her own feathers, she weaves these garments. And this is sort of this fairy tale. And so they sing like three songs about this this fairy tale, and that's that's the backbone of that record. Huh. Yeah, sorry. So I'm uh, welcome to the uh, Decemberist podcast. That's right. Well, uh, I, I will say, I mean, part, part of why I, why I was drawn to the lyrically to that song, and I think why I would probably like that record was, is because I've my whole life I've been I, I've always been drawn to mythologies, and like I me like too. I like things that have this where you're like, man, man, there's there's more to this. Like I could I could read more, or learn more, like or or even just a movie that seems to reference a story they're not going to tell, like a past they're not going to tell. Right. I don't really want to see that movie. I just want to know that, oh, there's this whole other thing there. And, right. and, I, and I'd love to find ways to learn a little bit more about that. Actually, what I'd love to hear is somebody tell me the story. Like, I don't want to watch a, a, a cinematic depiction of it, or I don't want to read a book about it, but I want to, right. I want to hear a storyteller weave me that yarn, like... Right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think I would have liked living in Homeric Greece just to listen to home, like the idea <laughs> right. of listening to this, this, this poet tell you this epic story. Like, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Because once you have the mythology, you, cr- you can, in a sense, create some of the stories yourself. Those things become uh, um, auto writing. You know, you kind of just see some of those things emerge out of the mythology, and you don't have to see the two-hour narrative because you're weaving the twenty-hour narrative in your head. Right. Well, I mean, it's 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 part of why. I mean, we're just going to jump right into nerdiness before we get yeah, to your yeah. before we get to your story, which I'm sure is a tale of nerdiness and a mythology of nerdiness all its own. <laughs> Epically it's said in the in the the kindest possible friendship sort of way. Absolutely, nerd to nerd. Um, but it's why I think as a kid, like Star Wars was really compelling because mm-hmm. you knew that you jump into this story and they keep referencing the past, right? right. And I think it's probably why the the prequels were were less successful to people of our generation is because I think we would have been okay with just the past having been this thing that gets referenced. And the problem mm-hmm. is when you pick up in the in, in episode one in The Phantom Menace, I don't know why we're talking about Star Wars right now, but but, but when you pick it. when you pick up there I feel like there's no past before that that, that really matters. Right. And, and and or they or they decentralize the past that was before that. Right. Right. But I don't I don't should, should put this way. Yeah, the, the part that it doesn't matter. There's a past but it doesn't matter. They don't seem to care too much about Would you about have that. liked uh, Phantom Menace more if they'd spent more time explaining where uh and spoiler alert for a movie that's like 15 years old or whatever. If they'd explained like where Darth Sidious came from. Well, no. He just exi- he sort not of ex- exists uh out of nowhere. Not right. explaining it, but at least referencing that there is a past. Yeah. Because I feel like that's what they don't do, where where I remember listening to, to Obi-Wan Kenobi, and this is going to tie into our autobiographies, I'm sure, but listening to Obi-Wan talk about, you know, the Clone Wars and talk talking mm-hmm. about, like, who Luke's father was in, in very vague ways, but, like, you realize, like, oh, there's this stuff that happened. And keep, people keep referencing this generation before. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, okay, this story is the story I'm hearing, but I know there's more to it. And I don't necessarily... I would probably have rathered that the prequels were 
I'm going to be so bold as to say six hours of Sir Alec Guinness telling the story of the Clone War and where Luke Skywalker came from. Right. I mean, that's not great cinema, but I think I would rather... I think I'd rather have that. So flashbacks from the Millennium Falcon. They're like they're flying around, and he's like explaining to Luke things that he yeah, ought, they're, they're he sitting in Mos Eisley, right? Yeah, and he's just 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 telling the story. Like I'm kind of in on that. I, I realize Alec Guinness is no longer with us, but right. But I would I would take that right if we can computerize Alec Guinness. And, <laughs> like, yeah, I think that would right some wrongs. And I don't even dislike the prequels, but I think that's where it's a little weaker. Right. So. Now here's the question then, because we already have the prequels, does and and because of the reaction we've had to them, does that then doom the subsequent episodes seven, eight, nine that are pro- that are um, that are still being produced right now, because they're forced to grapple with this mythology that's already been uh, explained. No, and actually, what excites me about those is that the word that hasn't entered the Star Wars universe, and I promise you this, we're going to get to ourselves here, but when we get to the start, the thing that I'd like about Star Wars universe is the word, one word that's never appeared that seems to have appeared in every other cinematic universe is the word reboot. Uh-huh. That it's not that we're rebooting stuff. We're just at, we're expanding the universe. Mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in expanding the universe, expanding the mythology than I am with the idea of rebooting. I don't want to see, a new Luke Skywalker, a new Han Solo, redoing a New Hope. I'm not interested. Right, right. Like right, I don't right. ever need to see that. We don't. We're, we've we've got that story. And actually, I like the fact of having to wrestle with what is there. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing. Let's say you don't like midichlorians. Wow, we're going. Sure. Deep. So let's say you don't like the midichlorian yep. um, explanation explanation of the, of the force. Well, you can look at our own Western history and say, well, oh, we used to think that like. Like, we didn't know about germs, and we used to think this is why people got sick. Or right. we used to think that the atom was the smallest, you know, the the, the smallest particle, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the word atom means it can't be split, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's silly now. So they can. it's easier to write into the future and be like, oh, yeah, we. how foolish were we to think that they were midichlorian? Like, you could wipe that away yeah. in, in, a, in a sentence mm-hmm. and, and move on. Like, that's cool. Like, you can I, – I like that more than right. trying to – trying to redo something. So actually the fact that they have to wrestle with what exists kind of makes it interesting and they can't just right. do alternate timelines or something like that. So, yeah, I agree. I, I, I do hope that for those kinds of reasons you bump, you, you give it a good forward bump into the future. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and I don't think they've leaked much about what, I mean, they've, some castings been leaked, but that's about it as oh, far I as I've seen that. Oh, well, we don't need to break that. News, oh, okay, but, right. but yeah, sounds good. Yeah, because I, I can't think of the guy's name. But there, okay. there's been some casting leaks. But other than that, um, there haven't done, been much story leaks. So okay, all right. So my guest today is Chris Moore. Hi, <laughs> fan of Star Wars and other things. Um, and I, and I think it's actually it's actually appropriate to start with uh, to start with something like pop culture and Star Wars because as I was writing down things that you know I I try to make a list of my guests of like what are words or phrases that come to mind there was something about um, kind of pop culture that I think about with you I mean we've talked about we've podcasted before we've talked about doing a podcast that where we can dive into you know various and random things like this Mm -hmm. Um, but also we are very close to the same age I mean you were born in January of 1978 that's right I was born in May of 1977 so we were born in a wor- into a world into which Star Wars existed, right? Right. Um, but right at that moment, we were born with Star Wars, right? right. And, and we grew up in that world. And I know for me, it, the, the experience of those films and that mythology deeply shaped me 
in terms of mm-hmm. what I thought good storytelling was, what I thought good art was, how I thought about mythology, how I was interested in mythology and history. Because it wasn't a right. big leap for me to say, oh, I'm interested in what Obi-Wan seems to be referencing. I can't read that book, but you know what else is interesting is, like, the Greeks have a mythology, too. I can right. go re- And I can actually read about that. There's an odyssey. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so I think it opened up some of those universes for me. So, um, so I mean, so there there is a connection here, and I think I think for people of our age, mm-hmm. um, you know, born or sort of around that time, it's it casts a let's say casts a shadow, but that has a negative. It, it just has an impact, you know. And I right. think it's why I'll I'll always be interested in wherever those stories go, whether they're good or not, is not the point entirely for me. Right. I- so this might be more to the point of the kind of story that's not good, but um, and Star Wars is is a much more enduring cultural phenomenon. But how do you feel about Goonies? Huh? In so, terms of what? In terms of did I like it? Do well, I did also, it have an also, impact? Also, or? a movie that probably hit us when we were at the right age to enjoy that movie. Yeah. Um, and was about uh, a, an adventure, a journey of discovery, a coming of age kind of characters mm-hmm. obviously younger than Luke Skywalker but right. but they're still filling the same role in this in the in the story I don't know there's I, like those movies I, I put those movies I put that movie in a similar box in my head to movies that I, I think are more enduring like Indiana Jones uh-huh. and in some ways for me Indiana Jones was a mythology that was as influential if not more influential than Star Wars really yeah okay and I, and, I, and I don't know why other than I think I saw those movies when I was younger okay. relative to Star Wars. For some reason, I came to Star Wars a little bit later. Oh, really? Okay, that's so interesting. A little bit, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely didn't see them in the theater. Um, of course, this, now we're getting into a little bit of the autobiography part, but I grew up in a really uh, rural part of Ohio, a small town, and so uh, going to the theater was... Uh, uh, was an undertaking. Okay. And so was, was there not a like hometown theater? No, no. Oh, really? Okay. There was barely a hometown stoplight. Okay. Um, so, 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 so how far, how far did you have to go to connect with, with the outside? Because obviously sure. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're not in your mid thirties, like there is no internet, there is no, right. I mean, there's probably four channels on TV. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have cable. We sound excessively old right now. But, right. Yeah, um, and it'll be interesting. I'm actually interested to hear this story because my story is a little bit different. I mean, I grew up in a town of about sixteen thousand, but okay. we were an hour from Minneapolis. For some reason, I grew up in a home that always had cable. So, like, okay. I had I feel like, and cable growing up meant thirteen channels, but sure. it was like there was access in a different kind of way. So, so I'm, right. I'm, I'm curious. So, 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 what did connecting broadly look like? It, um, to have those big kind of cultural like zeitgeist kind of experiences. Um, there was a very small movie theater um, in the in the county seat of the county I grew up in. It was two screens. And um, we didn't go there very often, mostly because it wasn't a very nice theater. And so I remember going to maybe 45, 50 minutes away to, with, with friends to see Jura- the first Jurassic Park, which okay. was a movie that everybody that went, that, that year saw. And that was a you know the big blockbuster, so we felt like well we have to see this. And I remember just having my head blown off by that movie, and so it was like it was kind of a like a birthday party type experience. Okay. Like, some people go like as a kid you like Chuck E. Cheese for your sure. birthday or something like that. Like going to the movies was like a birthday party kind of thing. So that'd be like a fourteen year old probably is that ninety two? Oh, probably right? yeah, maybe maybe okay. twelve or thirteen. Sure, yeah, okay. somewhere in that range. Um, and so those are those are I remember that being like the first movie I saw in the theater. As a 
like a young teen that had like like kind of wowing special effects. Uh-huh. And and as a consequence of that, I, when I was very very young, I think probably maybe too young, I, I did see. Uh, I think I saw E.T. Okay, right? um, but I have very vague memories of it in being in the theater. Okay, um, so you saw that in the theater, you say? Or I th- I'm pretty sure I did. Okay, I'm pretty sure my parents took me to that, but I don't think I saw any of the Star Wars movies in the theater when they came out the okay. first time. So I, the first time I saw them, okay, and so this is making us sound even older too. The way that you saw movies, uh, my parents didn't own a VHS player until I was, you know, already in my teens, and so the way you saw movies was you went to the li- the public library and you checked out a VHS player. And then you checked out a videotape to go with it, and then you brought all that home, and then you, your dad spent about 45 minutes figuring out how to hook it up to your TV and, and then playing it. Um, and so that was that. All of that was a process, and there was you know, and if there wasn't a VHS player to check out, then you just didn't do that. So um, uh, my movie, I, I kind of grew up uh, with a pretty limited um, movie experience. And I, in some ways that may have influenced this whole mythology thing because I almost felt, I almost feel like I, ha- when it comes to mythologies, especially uh, big epic mythologies in, in pop culture, I like, have catching up to do. And the way to catch up is to dive into the, to, to do a deep dive of the mythology um, rather than uh, a slow march through the, through the narratives. Sure. Sure. Um, it's interesting that you, you you talk about that sort of the how complicated it was to sort of get your hand on a movie. I remember so so Return of the Jedi came out in eighty four. Does that sound right? That sounds 83, right. 84. I saw it in nineteen eighty six. It's the most anticipated movie of my life. It's the only Star Wars movie I didn't see in the theater. If you count re releases, sure. Um, I saw it in my would have been my ninth birthday, nineteen eighty six. Like I, I remember, my brother and I, but we our birthdays were both really close together, um, and because uh, he was born at the beginning of July, I was born in mid May. So, and there were lots of kids in our class that had a, had boys in both our grades. So we had this joint birthday party, and it was a, you know this is like May twentieth or How'd something. How do you feel about that? It was fine. Okay. Yeah, I I I, um, I think it was fine. It meant more people were at the party. I'm not a big party. Even as a kid, like this, actually, this story will explain how I'm not a big party person. So we okay. had all these kids at our party. It's a beautiful Saturday. Everybody's outside, and me and I, I think uh, one or two other kids from my class sat in my living room and watched Return of the Jedi because I finally could get it on VHS. Like, because <laughs> it would be a new release, but that would mean your video store. Because I lived in a metropolis that had a video store, sure, sure. Um, and apparently in this super upper class home that had a, a VCR. Um, which I think we also seem to get early, which is funny because it's not like we might have been early adopters of technology. I don't. Which know. Which is funny if you knew my parents. A, we it's not like we were super wealthy, and B, they're not super high tech people. Although, although they made some really important choices, um, mm. because uh, and I want to ask you sort of when your connection to a computer came. Cause, but yeah. mine's also very early with that. Right. Um, but yeah, but so, but so the video store had one copy, mm-hmm. and I mean, and it was a new release, and the idea was people would rent it, and you'd rent it for one night. That's how long things would rent for. But the chances of walking into the video store and it being there were almost impossible. I remember going to the store and going yeah. through, like, what did people just return? And sometimes grabbing something and say, can you check this back in mm-hmm. because I want to get – or there would be, like, this waiting list to get on it. So yep. it took – well, it probably took about a year plus to come out on video, and then it took another year before you could actually get your hands on it. Right. So so that – so I, there were all – probably 20 kids at my house playing outside – and me and two or three friends sat in my living room and watched Return of the Jedi, and I was just in utter 
bliss. So maybe that says something about me and parties too. Like I just would rather do this, do this small thing. Now I ask you that because um, uh, I'm, I'm an only child. And so I'm always interested in how people experience things with their siblings. And to my mind, without having, without having siblings, having a joint birthday party with, with a sibling seems like the worst of both worlds. Right. Um, because you have to, you have to, essentially it demarginalizes or marginalizes your day um, at the same time forcing you to you know celebrate with their friends and that sort of thing but maybe it's different if you're brothers and you're close in age I guess yeah I yeah I mean we were works. we were you know two years apart so right. so so that wasn't and I knew the were kids you younger or older I'm the youngest I wonder if the I wonder if him being older felt like his birthday party was cheapened because he has younger brother but see he got his there. birthday party early because his birthday is July 2nd and he got to have his birthday oh, party so that's in the May. trade-off yeah okay yeah I, I actually I don't remember it being an issue okay I, I, I this is my, that's this the is my preconceptions of by being an only child I'm picturing it being an issue but yeah it doesn't, it doesn't happen well I also just don't remember I don't remember birthday part like I remember I I remember having birthday parties and and I more remember being happier when they morphed into you had two or three friends who stayed overnight and you oh, played oh, video yeah. games all night yeah. no that's way more fun Mm-hmm. But when we were when we were younger, so like you know, when I was nine and my brother was eleven, that would have been the Return of the Jedi party. That might have been one of the last ones we did that way too. Right. Um, yeah, I, I just it, I just don't remember those parties themselves being really the thing I was super excited about. I got excited later when I sort of got to get my ideas in the party. Like I, I had one birthday party that was um, the whole idea was we were just going to have a big water fight. So everybody uh-huh. brought you brought every you know, water gun you had, water balloons, and, like, all the gifts I got were water guns. So, like, I had just a cache of weapons. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it was – and it was a really fun birthday party, and, and the weather was nice. And we, and we just, were the right – depending on how old you were for this, this might have been, like, the Super Soaker era. Uh, it was a little before that. In fact, it, what's interesting is – I'm going to say a word that you, I don't know if, if you remember, but do you remember um, – I think they were called Entitech guns. No, like water guns? I'm sorry. Okay, I don't. this is well. The reason I bring it up is because how horrific in today's world their marketing campaign was. So they made um, their big ticket item was essentially it looked like a rocket launcher or a bazooka. Okay, um, but they also made handguns. Like I had a Beretta, and like <laughs> and, and they had to fill them up. You actually had like a clip that you that looked like a bullet clip, and and their their advertising slogan in the commercials so this was a big enough brand to have commercials on sure saturday mornings yep. was and i quote the look the feel the sound so real <gasps> it looked like i had a beretta <laughs> and i mean it was it was it was insane like and, and so i had you know uzi submachine guns like they looked like when mm-hmm. we would go out and play water fight like there wasn't these weren't like big neon colored things. Like, oh, we looked like soldiers. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it's so they weren't like bright green, bright orange. No, no, this oh, was wow. just before that. So the and the idea was like, let's just make these kids' toys look as much like assault weapons as you can. Like that. That's the selling point. Is mm-hmm. I want the one that actually is a pump action shotgun, and it, <laughs> and it, it works like that and looks like that and. Yeah, it it oh, was wow. it was really insane. It was a fun birthday party, but sure. but looking back, I just think. Wow, we we landed at a really weird spot right, right there, right before all kinds of things that would make that untenable. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah so, so that was that was uh, that was uh, one of one of my favorite birthday parties. I also okay, another favorite birthday sure. party. I'm trying to think what year this would have been. Do you remember? Um, 
This is just like people born in the late 70s conversation. Right. But do you remember when laser tag came out like not oh, like yeah. not like you went to play laser tag but like you but could you buy bought the stuff yeah i had the stuff so did i and i had some friends who did too so we actually I kinda had, wish i still had the stuff we had a laser tag party and I, and, and it was cool our, our basement kind of went in a circle wait how's your basement going in a circle well i mean like like you went down each room you could you could go oh okay you could, you could right, walk gotcha. around okay. in a circle so it was it was ideal for playing laser tag because you couldn't get trapped you could always keep running right gotcha yep, so yep. we broke into teams and and there was also it was a furnished basement so like there were mirrors and stuff and the cool thing with laser tag you is you could shoot, shoot off, off mirrors. The mirrors so yeah we had these like i had one birthday party that was an intense in my house laser tag party that seems like a market that shouldn't have gone away yeah um, there are places you can still go and play like mini golf and, and go kart racing, and then go play laser tag. Um, why aren't why is there not like the at home laser tag? When the technology is better and cheaper now, yeah. Because like what we had, it worked pretty well, but it was kind of crappy. Like oh yeah, like now I bet it would be awesome and probably not that expensive. And I mean, I would. I would own that stuff because I think it would be – we have a nice plot of land. It would be fun to go out in the backyard <laughs> with as adults and play laser tag Absolutely. in the backyard. It would be awesome. So, yeah, maybe we should get on huh. that. Hmm. Interesting. Patent pending. There we go. <laughs> All right. So so to go back to small town Ohio. Sure. Um, what was it like both growing – because I'm actually fascinated mm-hmm. by sort of the only child and the – the not only small town but but feeling pretty remote i mean what was that right. like growing up in terms of uh your experience at school um what the how how, how big was your class uh well my i graduated with 54 students this, okay. was a, this was a public high school uh there was an enormous district uh i was lucky enough to live in town and i grew up about two blocks from the school and I had uh, classmates that rode the bus for two hours a day. Oh my goodness! Um, because the, it was it was mostly farming community, uh, and people who lived out in the farms, if they couldn't get a ride into school, uh, would be on the bus. Could be on the bus for a really long time, hmm. and and so yeah. So it was a it was a small school, really spread out, but a very close knit community, and it's impossible not to know everybody in your class. When you have fifty four in your class, right, that sort of thing, right. It probably made being an only child easier, okay. Because because living in town, knowing everybody, I would have to leave my house to go find friends, or I'd have to have friends come over for the, for that to happen. But it was also still really accessible too, and I think I was probably able to walk, you know, walk around my bike across town earlier than you probably today would let your kids do so in a, sure. in a suburban environment. Sure. Um, so what were you, what were you like as a as we, we can fast forward to sort of high schooly times? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the I, I was trying to think about this and think about what what being in a small town environment has done to me. And one of the things that I I think I think is that we t- we we tend to worry a lot today about making our uh, our kids, what, we, what we're doing to our kids in terms of self-esteem, mm-hmm. the, the whole everybody gets a trophy kind of mentality. Sure. And there are proponents of that, and there are a lot of critics of that idea. And I think I kind of got 
the best of both worlds being in a small town because it wasn't it certainly wasn't the everybody gets a trophy mentality not in the 80s and not sure. in the 90s yet it was that was coming that idea of you know burgeoning you know of cultivating a, a self-esteem. Just, just, just out of curiosity yeah. when's the first time you won a trophy in your life or have or have you won a trophy okay well life? this will tell you a lot about the kind of person i was um i was i was i i did athletics in in school but i was never um uh, I was not a gifted athlete. And one might even go so far as to say I was a terrible athlete, mm-hmm. um, almost laughably bad. But I did it because there weren't that many social activities, and so you did what was there to do. Sure. Uh, but the things I got trophies for were kind of nerdy things. And so uh, one of the things I got a trophy for early was my, f- uh, my good friends Dave and Jason and I uh, participated in something called the Computer Challenge. And this was held at the Four County Vocational School. Okay. And you spent a couple months ahead of time getting a problem that you had to solve using a computer program. What age are we talking about? Uh, um, like fourth grade. Okay, so we're on like Apple IIe kind of situation. Uh, yeah, uh, except except we used a um, an Atari using uh, and, and programmed in BASIC. Okay, but that's uh, what you do on an, that's what you do on an Apple. Too. Other people would use an Apple, yeah, but okay. we used we used an Atari and we and programmed in BASIC, and um, uh, we. Um, I, we did a couple different things, but the ones that I remember really being really memorable was we had to create an electronic pet shop okay. um, and allow people to purchase pets. And one of the things is you had to have a promotion. And our thing was very big is somehow Dave – Dave was, by the way, the expert in this. Jason and I were sort of the uh, comedy relief slash backup. Okay. Were um, you writing code, though? Like, we were writing code. I mean, did, were you writing code? Yes. Chris Moore. Okay. Yeah. And – we had to uh, our our little our little um, pet shop played how much is that doggy in the window in little like MIDI sounds. Oh wow! Um, the other time, the one I remember being more involved in is we did uh, uh, we had to create an ATM, and people had to be able to have separate accounts and we would draw money and, and deposit money and, and that within our ATM. And then you'd go to this Four County Vocational School, and while you were your program would be judged. And then they would give you a. Pro- everyone had the same program in your in your division, but then they would get, they would um, make you modify it in some kind of way. I, I like th- at the event. At the while we're at the event, I think the modification for the ATM was that um, on the fly you had to figure out how to have your accounts give interest. Okay. That or something. It was something reasonably complicated, sure, right? Sure. And um, and then you'd have like an hour and a half to try to modify it, and like no adults were allowed nearby and stuff. And so it it felt like a very very high stress thing. And we won a couple of times in our division. Oh, that's cool. Um, so that was our. Uh, and I, I had to chalk it up mostly to Dave, who was kind of the uh, the 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 ringleader of that little project. The other thing that I will um, I will um, trumpet, and I think probably a formative experience for me uh, as a. Um, I don't know that it made me become the kind of person I am today, but I will look back fondly on when I was in fourth grade. Also, my school won the county quiz bowl uh, ah. uh, um, t- uh, tournament, which was for fourth and fifth graders. And uh, we, like I said, I went to a really pretty small rural school. and was mostly surrounded by other small rural schools, but the county seat, which is where the theater was, um, was probably three or four three times the size of our school, maybe bigger, and we beat them in the championships. And to, to my little fourth-grade brain, it felt like Hoosiers. And <laughs> they actually bust my entire class there to watch the championships. It was in the evening. Um, and, like, I remember there, there, were like, there, was like, there were cheers. There was stomping. I was a rock star the next day in class. Everybody was patting me on the back for, you know, we, uh, for, like, basically winning a trivia contest. And... Um, from that time, I think I took a, took upon my identity as like 
I'm that I'm like the guy who knows stuff. Like I'm never going to be the athlete, so uh-huh. I'm going to be the guy who kind of knows things. I don't know. Hmm. And I, that's I've probably never quite lost that. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, of other notes that I wrote down for you was was games because that's one of my first impressions of you was. I don't even know if this was before I met you, if maybe Stacey Hunter <laughs> Hecht had mentioned, like, that mm-hmm. you were big into board games and stuff like that. And yeah, that's Oh, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah. Um, so so it's, I'm interested, like, like Quiz Bowl is a, is a, a version of, like, being a game sure. player, right? Yeah. And, um, uh, what was, what, how did that manifest itself as a kid? Um, and then I'm also, because I've never heard, we've talked a lot, I've never heard sort of the, even that you had a little bit of background in, in programming, like, was that ever a direction you were interested in, in terms of, Mm-hmm. making games, doing programming to create, I mean, combining sort of these mythologies right, with, right. with games, with the computer as a, as an outlet or resource for that. Is that a, is that a, you know, a path not taken or, or is that something you'd never really thought about or explored? Maybe you're thinking about it now. Right. <laughs> in, in various times in my life, it's kind of surfaced. I've never become someone who's, you know, highly facile with a modern programming language or anything mm-hmm. like that. I learned enough in graduate school to get through a year of, of graduate statistics. Um, I looked into what agent-based modeling might look like for um, for political science purposes, mm-hmm. but I've never really gotten steeped in it. I've never, uh, other than those, you know, um, middle school flirtations with that world when when computer programming was just starting to take off. When this is, bef- you know, b- before uh, DOS three point one, right? Right. Uh, I, I, I sort of looked into some of those things, but never really as a never really thought of this as a, as a career path. What really attracted me more at that time, and uh, from the mythology and the game perspective, was was reading, and I read a ton, hmm. and loved to devour mythologies and epics and, and different kinds of stories that way, especially stories that that hinted that there might be a bigger question or a bigger or bigger ideas in the world that weren't explored there. And um, so, like, what, what might you, what yeah. might have you been reading at that time? I read Lord of the Rings really early. Okay, and I, I consider that pretty formative, and and the Chronicles of Narnia, but also like the some of the Isaac Asimov books. Okay, and and um, let's see what else. One of my big uh, early reads that sucked me in as an epic was uh, it was David Edding's books. And David Eddings is a was a Portland back to Portland again, uh, but a Portland based author who wrote. Um, critics would say it was very derivative of uh, the Arthurian legends and uh-huh. derivative of the Lord of the Rings legends. But it was your typical fantasy um, uh, kind of MacGuffin kind of story. Like there's a sword and we better get a hold of it, or the bad guys will, and it make the world end. And uh, there's a, a, a poor humble farm boy, but don't worry, he's actually the king in disguise. And and it's that kind of story, that coming of age of like, of, you know, of every of every. Like you're a wizard, Harry. You're the king, Garion. Like it's that mm-hmm. kind of story. Um, sure. But I remember just I, one of the things I really liked about it was it had this um, this vibe that I that resonates with me across different kinds of stories, which is there was a community of oddballs. And I like that motif in stories. So, uh, which brings it, us back to Goonies, kind of. Which brings us back to Goonies, but also tells you why I really like the movie Ocean's Eleven. Okay, and it's that same kind of uh, Gary and this little farm boy who was going to turn out to be the king had this whole uh, pantheon of protectors, and they were all weird. Like there was one guy who was like basically like a Viking warrior, and if Gary was ever threatened with his life, he would turn into a giant bear. Um, but there was also like this little like 
kind of rat, uh, rat-like rat uh, thief character who was really smart and brainy and was the com- was the foil to the big brutish Viking. Mm-hmm. And then there were there was you know the matronly character and the grandfatherly character who was basically Gandalf right. or uh, Merlin or whatever whatever that kind of that sure. Joseph Campbell <laughs> sure, <laughs> recreation sure. of mythology kind of character is. Um, and they all surrounded and nurtured and brought up this character in the same way that you know the various professors at Hogwarts bring up Harry and. and and the Weasleys and that sort of thing. So um, those kinds of stories attract me for those kinds of reasons, I think. So did you think about your your um, group of friends, like, as this oddball group of people? Oh, I like, really and like, wanted and like, to. And, like what, are, like, what are the skills that this person yeah, has? It never works out that way in, in reality. Right. Because we're just too well-rounded for that to ever happen. Right. But... Uh, not a lot of fatal flaws in like a fourth grader. No, not so much. You know the okay. So and um, I don't know who's going to be to listen to this. And we're so far from my 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 uh, my training as a scholar right. or the kinds of things that brought me to that. But I'll just tell you this quick story. So when I was in sixth grade, which is the perfect year for this, and I grew up in the perfect place for this too. Um, my friend Grant had a sleepover, and about and he brought about twelve or thirteen people to the So that's a perfect size, like that Ocean's sure. Eleven kind of story. And we decided in sixth graders that we were going to go teeping. Does anyone TP anymore? Does that happen? Is I that think in thing? high schools it's still a thing. Right? Okay, well, especially I, th- I think that that's actually why something like Costco was invented, so you could buy it in bulk and, right. not, and not look weird and not and not look yeah. weird. Yeah, because you can't go to like your local grocery store and buy like. All kinds of toilet paper, but you can buy like a, a whole pallet of toilet paper. At oh, Costco. but we, oh, but we did. And that's, right, right, right. So, yeah. So, so, we, so I grew up in this, uh, so in this small town, and, and there was a little grocery store called Jaegers, and, and Jaegers uh, did not have the uh, the giant sized toilet paper. They had like these, the four roll and the eight roll, and we all agreed that we were going to go teeping, but we had to do this kind of subversively, and so every one of us had to at some point buy some toilet paper and we were buying it like eight rolls at a time but also you couldn't like tell your parents you were doing this because they would get wise to it too so it was very cloak and dagger for a sixth grader to try to get into Jaegers to buy an eight pack of toilet paper and then also keep it hidden from your parents what a weird thing to be carrying around it's yeah. pretty bulk so there are a lot of backpacks involved as I recall and I'm sure that to the adults we looked utterly transparent in what we were doing but so we were all stockpiling all this stuff but we ended up with about a hundred rolls or so and we show up at Grant's house, and I remember having that kind of mentality of like, okay, well, amongst my friends, like, here are the ones who are good at sneaking around, and here are the ones who are fast, mm-hmm. and here, like, so even kind of having that notion of like, like, well, here's what we're kind of good at. Well, but at the end of the day, we were all sixth graders, and um, uh, we, and usually like the kid who's fast is also the one who's strong and is a good climber, right? And then there's and then there's the rest of you who are smart, and that's about what you got. So. That's about what we got. Yeah. Uh, there's really two types of people, as it turns out. Right, yeah. Three, because then there's girls at that age, right? That's a different thing. That's a different thing, and there were none of them involved in this escapade. And so uh, we decided uh, – so this is about how far sixth grade planning goes. We decided we were going to go TP, but we didn't even really decide who we were going to TP. So we start leaving – we leave Grant's house at, like, midnight or one in the morning and start out. And you have – 12 or 13 boys walking down the street with backpack, full backpacks of toilet paper, reasonably conspicuous in a town of a thousand people. And uh, within, uh, we, we'd probably walked halfway across town when one of the only cars out on the street, which was with the local police officer, we had three cops, I think, in the town when I was there. Not all on at the same time, but, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, 
turned on his lights, pulled us over. I, I, I should, this should tell you something about me. I don't think I've ever told my parents this. I wonder if they'll ever listen to this podcast. I ran. I was one of the of, of the whole group. Most of them stopped and were were good boys and like basically disgorged the contents of their backpacks into the back of the cop car. We probably supplied the poli- uh, the fire station with toilet paper for the next uh, next year or so. <laughs> but uh, th- four of us ran and got away. And of course, the police officer is not going to chase after boys with toilet paper. He gave the rest of them stern warnings that if anything in the town was TP the next day, we would have to clean it up. Um, so you're still kind of a fugitive. I'm kind of a fugitive. Town. I was never caught. And we ran and ran. We took this incredibly circuitous run around town and eventually ended up back at Grand Central. Did you stick together or did you like We stuck out? together okay. and it was very um, uh, very military. Like We had some very tense conversations hiding behind someone's backyard above ground pool about how we were going to get back to Grant's and whether uh, we should be worried about dogs and, and like, 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 like kind of like, like – like serious, like we might go to jail kinds of conversations mm-hmm. that now are very, very funny to think back about. And um, so this will tell you a little bit about uh, sort of like kind of how we were thinking. We got back to Grant's house finally at the end of the night. Like the, 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 what's funny about this is we thought the rest of the guys were in jail, right? I mean, like we didn't know what had happened to them. We got back to the house like an hour. A- it seemed like an hour after we had been initially stopped by the by the cop. That um, and all the boys were already back there. Like they were having snacks. They were playing video games. Like we've been out in the cold hiding. What are you doing? And um, like for them, that it was like a moment that had passed. They but, sort of forgot about the plan yeah. At but that we point. still had our like twenty five rolls of toilet paper, and so and I remember the police officer said, if anything's toilet paper, you're going to have to clean it up. So. In some sort of twisted logic to spite him for saying that, we teepeed Grant's house, the house we were staying at. We went out and teep and, and well, because you also had the teepee lust at that point, right? Exactly, to... exactly. And so we thought, well, that I'll show him, but it really didn't because we still had to clean it up. Um, so that was wow. My... Was that some awesome logic? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so that was that's my foray into a life of crime. Interesting. So really. if, if you had asked that cop for football cards, what team would they have been? Wait, what? <laughs> Didn't cops hand out football cards when you were a kid? That was like, no. That was like a thing, right? It's a like, thing? Yeah, because it's like that's how like to make the cops not seem as scary. Like if you worked as a kid, if you walked up to a cop, like they would have like Vikings football. Like they weren't like like Donruss or Topps cards, but they like there were like football cards printed for the police officers that they would hand out to kids. I have was, never seen such a thing. I'm not making this up. I believe you. Wow. but that was not my experience. Wow. Um, because I always had but this thought that it would be in funny. my defense, I grew up in the nexus of bad football. That's true. I was equidistant from the mid from the early 1990s Lions, Browns, and Bengals, and that was a pretty bad time to be an NFL fan. Yeah, yeah. Because huh. see, my dream was always it's still as an adult. If I ever got like caught caught by the cops, what am I doing that I get caught? If I ever got caught by the cops, I would, as a joke, like ask them for football cards. But apparently that probably wouldn't be funny. It wouldn't play well. I don't. Yeah, that. I think that must have been a local thing up here. I don't know. Huh. I wonder if they still do that. I hope so. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I remember. Like I was always scared. What's funny is the point of this is to make them not scary. I was right. always terrified to ask. Like I don't think I ever. I sure. think I maybe did it once. But, like they did it. Like they carried around. <laughs> but but they, they were cards of football players, not cards of the police officers. No, they were Vikings football cards. Yeah. Sure. Like okay. so, I'm sure the Vikings okay. in the police department. Or like, Worked something out. Yeah, yeah, the, and they, they had these things printed. But that was a way to make the cops more approachable. But, yeah, interesting. I love so it. That, maybe that's a Minnesota thing. I, I think that's, so. That's great. So so how does 
how does this where does the how does the it's sort of the interest in games mythologies all this right. how does this dovetail into when you go away to college you go to Albion which is in Michigan mm-hmm. right? that's right um, and you go in the doors as a poli sci major right or sort of sort of a pre lawish kind of thing or what sort of I should just let you tell me instead of me trying yeah. to guess <laughs> so let me finish up a thought that I that I started earlier which explains a little bit about the background of this and I'll explain how I end up. Uh, becoming sort of this political scientist who's interested in games and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I um, I said that growing up in, the, in a small town in the time I did kind of gave me the best of two worlds, which is that we weren't quite yet in the in the in the era of of self esteem enlargement sort of thing. Um, you know, there was definitely a notion of some people are better than others, the kind of things, and and participants do not get trophies. But I was also in a place that was small enough that if you were good at anything, uh, there were people there who were going to make you feel special. Mm-hmm. And that almost seems like the perfect kind of world to me. It's like the people who get participant trophies now and don't feel special is, or, or I kind of question their self-esteem is because it's a huge location. It's a huge place. Like it's suburbia or whatever. Or everybody gets a trophy. Well, in my small town, uh, if you were good at anything – People told you about it, mm-hmm. and and people knew you, and so. But it was genuine recognition. It was genuine recognition, and um, and also the fishbowl was quite small. And I've just, I've, you and I've talked recently, but we've read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, David and Goliath, and the idea of, of the size of the fishbowl you're in really matters. And I think it was really important for me to be in a small fishbowl. I think if I had grown up in a suburban environment, it's likely I wouldn't be a, a professor today, hmm. um, because there probably would have been kids in my class who were a lot smarter or a lot more talented or better writers or, or whatever. Um, but because I was in a place where I was in a small enough fishbowl for a long enough period of time, I got a, a big dose of self-confidence. Did you also, I mean, did, were you and, also encouraged and pushed or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I, and I wonder if I had been in a bigger environment, if other people would have been pushed instead. Okay. Um, so I think I, it was very serendipitous for me that I was in that kind of environment. So I went to Albion. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting, interesting you talk about that because although I grew up, closer to a metropolitan area and i grew up in a much bigger town i went to a very small school i went to a, a, a catholic high school okay or catholic school and a catholic high school so i graduated with a smaller graduating class than you had it was 39 okay. people oh, okay. and that was a big class for my school okay it was 39 i think my brother two years before graduated with 26 oh wow so so i actually feel a lot of what you're saying like i know that feeling of of like if you if you show some promise in something and some effort in something, it gets re- it gets recognized, yeah, and 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 you get encouraged in in, in certain ways. So so in, in lots of ways, although they're very, it's a very different upbringing. I know that feeling of like, had, had I been at the the public high school, which is a you know maybe fifteen hundred kids at that school, like how right. different would that have been? Because it's my inclination to sort of want to just yes fade into the background and, and not be noticed where at a school the size of mine even somebody who wants to fade in the background and not be noticed gets noticed right right you know and that that's sort of the point it's of almost ineluctable yeah yeah so yes yeah, so i think that was really valuable i think i probably because the because when i came to college i had no um i i wasn't necessarily a political science major i kind of thought that i would do something like political science or history because I wanted to be a lawyer, and the reason I wanted to be a lawyer was only because um, I, that seemed like a cool job to have, and it was one that I had I had seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to wear a suit, you get to make arguments in, in, in like a courtroom, and that seemed really interesting. 
and so I, I was pre-law when I started. And you know, if you're going to be pre-law, you do history, you do political science. And I, I took a poli-sci class and a history class my fresh my first semester and loved both of them. So well, that that was just confirmatory. Okay. So why Albion? Uh, why Albion? Uh, that tells you a lot about the kind of professor I want to be. When I visited there, it felt um, it felt very warm and welcoming, not only from students but especially from faculty members. I had two different faculty members who who essentially shanghaied me and took took my campus visit off the rails. A political science professor that I visited with basically kind of kept me after class and then. Uh, we ended up talking for like the next hour at his volition kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, my, my tour guide didn't know where I went. And then I, there was a program at, at Albion called the Ford Institute for Public Service. It's still there. It's a great program. and It's a multidisciplinary program for anybody who's interested in public service. My wife did it. She ended up becoming a, an elementary school teacher. Um, I had friends do it who went off to the military. I had friends who did it who um, who work in the arts and all kinds of other folks too. But it's people who are interested in public service broadly, and there were a few kind of uh, joint courses that we all took together, and then it was, an internship was required, and there were a few other building blocks. So did you go into went, Albion into the Ford like, or, yes. or was that a, was that part of picking Albion was that institute? Yes, okay. absolutely. And the director of that was someone who I would consider a, a definite mentor and influence. Uh, his name was Kim Tunnicliffe. I tragically passed away a couple of uh, summers ago in a car accident. But he uh, um, he was someone else who, when I met that day, um, a week later got a handwritten note from him referencing things that we talked about. So it was clear, like, the, the, one of the things that impressed me is this st- kid coming out of this rural school was there are these really bright adults who are really interested in me and mm-hmm. my stuff and things that I'm talking about. And so... I went to Albion essentially on the strength of individuals rather hmm. than the strength of programs or what the school looks like or what it, you know or what sorts of things they do that way. I knew I knew I wanted a small school and that sort of, those things seemed to amplify it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was Albion. That was why I went to Albion as opposed to some of the other schools I was looking at. And it was a great choice. And those things actually turned out to be true. I ended up having these great mentoring relationships with people that I met. When I visited there, but also as I as I spent four years there as a student too, and and I mean you, you sort of alluded to it sort of shapes the, the professor that yeah. you want to be. I mean I would say you are in lots of ways. One of the other things I wrote on here is student relationships because I mean as much as Bethel's a place that values that right that um, that puts that kind of front and center. I mean it, it's part of, even going back to to Edgar and talking about what. The institution is supposed right. to be he philosophically, talks about, yeah. Right. Um, you're somebody who I think exemplifies that, and I, I no think, thanks. and I would say, in, in a positive way, sort of challenges me to think about what are those, what could those relationships look like? Because I, I know um, watching you interact with current students, but also mm-hmm. students who you, who were here when you first came, or or that you got to know and have since graduated, right? And still, I mean, you still have a pretty tight group of students that you have maintained those relationships with. Yeah. I think that's a really uh, that's a really powerful thing. I think it it speaks to what to the kind of professor that you are. I think Thanks. in the classroom, I think those is where probably the germs of those things begin, mm-hmm. and then they develop outside. So, yeah, and I and I don't have a um, a well defined philosophy for how I cultivate that, other than being approachable and wanting it to happen. And then sort of encouraging students who also seem to want it to happen too. Um, some 
uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it beyond that. Um, it it does influence uh, it, uh, my my favorite ex- educational experiences as a student come out of these sort of close knit communities. We had uh, Albion was small enough that once we got deeper into our major in political science, we probably graduated about fifteen majors at a, at a time, and um, there was this group of us who all take the same classes together, the same seminars, the same upper level classes. And we referred to ourselves and the faculty referred to us as the usual suspects. <laughs> and um, it was rare that we would get someone who was outside that little bubble of, of friends who, um, who would take those classes with us. And so we would have like these not only semester-long conversations but um, multi-year conversations because uh, we were also a relatively politically diverse crowd. It seemed like we had about as many pretty hardcore Republicans as we had pretty hardcore Democrats in a political science class. That's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So as our, one, of the, one of my favorite memories is that at the time that I was there, the college Republicans and the college Democrats uh, were run, both run by uh, women who almost looked like they could have been sisters and, hmm. um, uh, and were, in fact, best friends. And so they disagreed. They they liked each other quite a bit and disagreed vehemently about politics. And that was the kind of world that, that Albion was the time that I was there was this sort of, uh, congenial, but, um, but also very challenging kind of environment and sitting in a room of, of 12 people where that's likely to happen a lot was really, uh, kind of almost my idealized educational experience. Hmm. So, so who were, who were instructors there that, uh, if we think about, it, I mean, because mm-hmm. what's in, what interests me is is I mean, not just that you have these relationships, but that you state it as an intention, like that that's something that's that's part of the professor you want to be. Yeah. Because I think sometimes we, uh, when I have those kind of relationships, they're almost accidental. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I just got to know this person, and but it's not like I'm thinking that's part of who I want to be mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. And I I think that that you articulate that is like that's a I think that that does really sort of show like. Um, when you think about uh, the instructors that you had at Albion, who sort of shaped what that looked like, I mean, what, who were they? What did that look like? Well, I'll, I'll tell a couple stories here, and I and um, I don't mean this to leave other people out, but the two that immediately come to mind. So the first one, so I had uh, I mentioned Kim Tunnicliffe, who was the director of this Ford Institute. He was a PhD from Iowa, in uh, uh, he was a Sovietologist, and I was becoming his student a few years after the Cold War ended. So he was sort of casting about a little bit, which was also uh, an interesting time to be a, po- a political science or a mm-hmm. history major because mm-hmm. I had G.W. Carlson here, and we did. I mean, Absolutely. it was you know all of the courses he taught about about communism, like they were now morphing into post-communism courses. And, exactly. But there was also an exciting moment in literature because all this stuff was coming out. So, yeah. And that was, and that, and, and, the mention, and the notion of literature, not even scholarly literature, but just literature in general is, is really important here. So Kim was someone who was very, who was steeped in sort of a liberal arts tradition. And so I, I took American foreign policy from him. Um, he, uh, importantly for me, was the model UN advisor. Maybe we should talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but, um, he was someone who would not only talk about foreign policy, but would also say, hey, did you see the most recent thing in The New Yorker? He was the f- person who got me to you know, start reading magazines like The Atlantic. And then, but also to talk about what it would be like to go on from, from thinking about those things broadly, uh, thinking about what kind of literature uh, um, was important to read as well, and what it was like to be in the State Department, or what it would be like to... Um, uh, to teach, and those were things that he was very, very good at. 
Um, he's very, uh, a, a very warm and kind and generous thinker, too, who really invited students into his world. And um, he, was a, uh, he was a smoker, and this was a time in which uh, smoking was verboten in, in campus buildings. And so he would invite you know, students from the Ford Institute into his office, uh, wink at his secretary, close the door, open the windows, light up his pipe, and then we'd talk about whatever was happening in hmm. Russia. And that just felt like being inducted into some kind of such inner circle of sure. of, of ideas that I think is something that I found incredibly, almost rom- like uh, uh, romantic in some kind of idealized way of what college is supposed to be like, but also something that I thought in my own way I want to make sure that I replicate this. And the other um, story is is similar in that um, the political science professor who was my mentor undergraduate was a was is, is a professor he's still there he's a the chair of the department now named uh, Andrew Grossman and Grossman actually came to. Uh, Albion the exact same time I did. And I came from a small rural school, uh, r- rural village, and he came from uh, New York City. Um, and we both landed at this at Albion. And um, we sort of warmed to each other <laughs> coming from those very disparate kinds of experiences and uh, would have this, sort of these long conversations about international relations theory and American political development and talk about what that what those things look like. And he introduced to me the, the idea that as students, we're having conversations with scholars that we're not just assimilating information for some kind of competency, but we're part of this longer-term ongoing conversation. And um, that was incredibly important to uh, to think about how I want to communicate things with hmm. uh, with my students. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, so you have these experiences. Mm-hmm. When does when does graduate school pop into your head as the direction or? You, Especially, mm-hmm. I mean, you said you sort of came in thinking law. When does right. when does that tilt to saying, well, maybe, maybe a graduate program that's not a law program? Right. So I'll, I'll make this I'll make this quick because you're probably interested in the in the the in the the deep dive details. But I had a um, I had a, an experience while I was at at Albion called Operation Bentley. It was a program that Albion had gotten through some through some grants, and it was a program for teaching high school juniors about. Um, civics, and we brought in a, a bunch of juniors around the state and had them meet uh, uh, state legislators and, and you know, I think even uh, court officials and uh, sort of things. And then um, we ran a, uh, a local government simulation for them on campus. And they needed uh, about ten of us college students to be essentially at like camp counselors for a week. And um, it was. It was an enormous amount of work. I, I did it twice, and it was an enormous amount of work. It was a lot of fun, and I, I experienced two things through that program. And I experienced what it was like to facilitate um, an extended kind of game, a simulation of, of local government for these students, and to try to make it realistic for them, trying to make it fun for them, but also to see what it was like to answer their questions and to help them learn more about about local government. And even though that was, local government was not my big interest. I, I, I got a sense of I really like this sort of teaching thing. The other thing that pushed me towards graduate school and away from law school was I, I studied abroad. And doing that Ford program, I, you had to do an internship. And so I spent a semester in London. And I worked for an NGO, a little think tank called Vertec. And Vertec uh, studied tr- uh, international treaties and how you verify agreements and treaties. And I loved that. And the folks who ran it had PhDs and international politics and I thought that was really cool and after spending a semester in London I basically came back and at, at that point put the law school idea to bed and decided to take the GRE instead of the LSAT and 
thought that I would probably go to maybe go to graduate school and if possible get a PhD and kind of um, thought I'd like to be one of the people that I had been around these last hmm. three and a half years or yeah. so. Yeah. So did you go? Did you go right to grad school from? I did. Yeah. Okay. So and I you, graduated. You attended an Ohio State University. Is I, atten- I attended the Ohio oh, State. Oh, okay. University. I got my article wrong. Yeah, here, so. yeah. Let's get the article right there. Yeah, the million dollar article is supposedly uh, supposedly when they decided to emphasize the the uh, changing the street signs and the stationery cost the university a million dollars. I have no idea if that's true or not, but huh. they've certainly made it. it makes back. a good story. So. Yeah, it makes a great story. Yeah. So yeah, I went to Ohio State. Uh, uh, I was coming out of Albion. Uh, that was a it was a small school. It was um, I managed to I had a pretty good GPA and I had a pretty good GRE scores and uh, um, that gave me a couple different options of places I could go. But Ohio State was was great because um, they had a they had a really good IR program, international relations program, which is what I wanted to study. And they also had this this cool thing that I didn't know much about, but seemed like it would be a good fit, which was that they specialized in political psychology. And that ended up being a very fortuitous choice. Uh, one of the other schools I looked at was much more quantitatively oriented and would have had me doing a lot more uh, mathematical analysis. And although I think I probably could have done that, I did a year of grad stats at Ohio State, um, I think the psychology thing has had longer-term benefits for me. Did you enjoy Did you enjoy your, your graduate school experience? And, and partially why I ask is because mm. really small town, really small high yeah. school, pretty small college. Yeah. Right, you you know you have your usual suspects you hang out with, and then you're going to a, what I presume is a very large university, Ohio State. Very large university. We were, it was it was a it was a weird thing, and I'll, so I'll say a couple comments about it. The short answer is I had a, a, a had an ambivalent experience about graduate school. I, this the grad program itself was quite small, relative to the size of the total university. Universities, tens of thousands of students. Uh, the political science graduate program was about 90 students, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, some, many of them were ABD, and so you didn't see all those students at the same time. There were 10 students in my cohort for international relations, and I think five of us, five or six of us, defended our dissertations. So that's about typical, mm-hmm. about a 50% attrition rate. And the uh, so the program itself was quite small. You get to know everyone quite well that way. The overall size of the university didn't really impact me until I started teaching there. Mm-hmm. And then I got a sense of what that was like for undergraduates. And that convinced me that I wanted to be at a smaller institution to to uh, to teach my students. The the experience of graduate school itself, I said I was ambivalent about, I really liked the idea of 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 essentially more advanced political science classes. Mm-hmm. They gave me a chance to get more deeper into these ideas and thinking about these things hard. It was also the first time that I was uh, definitely felt like I was below average. Not even I, I, There were plenty of times in college that I didn't feel like I was the smartest kid in the room, but I definitely now felt like I was well behind a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm talking to other people who have since become my friends and colleagues at this institution and others, I know that that's a common feeling that everyone often sees everyone else's smartest moments and not their dumbest. And so everyone tends to think that everybody else is smarter than them. And that that's sort of this fishbowl-y kind of effect that occurs. You're also 22 and presumably your whole program's not 22 year olds. Right. There was some of us that came right out of undergraduate, but a number of people were older. Um, Some of them already had master's degrees and other kinds of, of accomplishments as well. So, yeah, I definitely f- felt um, young. 
and I definitely felt um, uh, I was caught off guard by a number of, 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 of you know how shockingly bright a lot of people were, and that 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 was an adjustment. And I don't, um, yeah, I don't know that. That that took a while. That wasn't the hard part about graduate school for me. The hard part about graduate school for me was the was the solitary part of it. I mm-hmm. loved the classes. I liked my my cohort of friends. And, sure. and um, the hard part was settling in to to do the dissertation and, and and the solitary experience that that was. I probably could have made it a less solitary experience if I had reached out to more people. But the way it ended up working was I worked with my advisors and who were who were great. And I had wonderful advisors in graduate school and very very kind mentors. But uh, um, I've learned about myself that uh, working solitarily is is um, not one of my strengths, and so hmm. it's probably good that I'm not at a big research university where I teach a class or two a year and and write otherwise, sure. because I need the uh, the personal interaction with students and faculty and colleagues and friends uh, to give me energy. Sure, sure. Yeah. So so how do you how do you end up at Bethel then? What's the I wrapped up my. I was wrapping up my dissertation in um, 2006 and 2007, and was trying to decide with my advisor whether to go on the market before I had the dissertation done, um, or uh, wait until I was done. And he, uh, he and I were both a little bit worried that um, uh, some parts of the dissertation were lagging in terms of progress, and he was worried that I would, um, I would uh, maybe get um, maybe go on the market too early. And this was a time. Well, probably like now, where uh, the markets were quite tight, and so you couldn't um, uh, you couldn't count on getting a position. So having a dissertation done was a huge feather in your cap. And mm-hmm. so I, we ultimately decided that I would do like a kind of a slow uh, a slow sell sort a of soft thing, launch. A, a soft launch. That's a good way of saying it. So we um, I isolated only about um, fifteen or so positions around the country that really fit the kind of places I would love to be. Mm -hmm. They all tend to be small liberal arts colleges and they tended to be in the Midwest. Uh, I was married at this point. I married my wife. Uh, We met an undergraduate. We got married my second year of graduate school. She was a teacher and um, she is a teacher. She was a teacher at the time in, uh, in Columbus. And so uh, kind of just want, basically we were pretty picky in, uh, in terms of the places I applied to. And it just so happened that one of those places I applied to was Bethel. And got a couple nibbles from a couple of the places, and Bethel was one of them, and invited me out to to interview here. And compared to some of the other institutions, it looked like a really a really good fit. So when so when Bethel gave, gave me the offer, I was thrilled, and and my wife was also able to find a really good job mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities that she really liked too. So uh, that was uh, I I had never taught or been a student at a Christian school before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been a, uh, a Christian. Um, Essentially, my whole life, and I had a had a conversion experience when I was really young, and had grown up in the church, and grown up in church youth groups, and all of those kinds of things. Did campus ministries when I was in a, an undergraduate, and never really thought that I would be at a Christian school necessarily. Mm-hmm. But when I saw that Bethel was a Christian school on top of being this a, a liberal arts institution, that seemed just like icing on the cake for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. even though I didn't know what that would really be like. So at this point, you've been here six years? Yes, my sixth year. Okay. Um, so you talked about, uh, as a student at Albany, you talked about you know some of your best student experiences and how informative they were in terms of becoming the teacher you want to be. Yeah. Um, how about teaching experiences? What are, I mean, if you were to, to isolate you know, mm-hmm. a, a teaching experience or two where you felt like, this is where, like, this is what it, this is what it is. This is what I'm after. What would those be? 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's others, and so I'm probably not getting the best ones here. But I've had, uh, I've had some, some really nice experiences. I, I taught before I came to Bethel. I taught at Ohio State. I also did a, a brief adjuncting at a middle liberal arts institution, which was confirmative that I wanted mm-hmm. to be at a place like Bethel. But obviously the bulk of my undergraduate teaching at a liberal arts institution has, has come here. And I've just had, I've had some neat experiences. And I, um, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to out the student on a, on a personal level without, without clearing it with them. So I'll, um, I'll just speak about them euphemistically, but I had a student who, um, came into my class at the beginning of the semester, um, with a, with a pretty significant, uh, chip on their shoulder. Not only did they not want to be in my class, they really didn't want to be at Bethel. Hmm. And um, they were here because they had partied their way out of the state school that they were at. Hmm. And we don't get very many students like this anymore. I get a sense that maybe stu- schools like Bethel used to get more students like like, my, like the student I'm describing. But basically the parents had said, we will pay for you to go to school, but only if you go to a school like Bethel because they sort of thought it was kind of like reform school. Sure. And the students sort of treated it like it was reform school, which is to say they were not happy to be here. And uh, without talking through, without, without talking explicitly about it, we just sort of both resolved to make the experience as, as pleasant as possible. And over the course of the semester, we really saw a change in the student, and that change went well beyond my class. Hmm. Uh, I didn't affect this change. I mean, I think I made that class more pleasant for that student. But they actually um, fell in love with Bethel. They actually sort of had, um, had their own re- uh, religious conversion while they were here. Hmm eventually became uh, a major in our department. And, um, oh, so they weren't a major. They were just genetting no, it I think, up. I think and... they were just genetting at that point, trying okay. to decide what to do. And they may have been interested in, in law. I'm not, I'm not real sure. But um, but eventually became one of our majors and just a, a very warm, genuine, and good student too. But all of that happened because of the I – th- I have to think that it wasn't necessarily my – you know role in their life, but the role that, that this institution and the various people this institution played, we, we saw that person essentially go from really being openly hostile to, to, to the project of, of Christian education that we have here to someone who warmly embraced it. Huh. And that's very fulfilling to me, the thing that we can have that really about-face change. Um, I had an, an, another... Um, so that that, that's, that makes it sound like everything is is, is rosy here. <laughs> so the other experience I'll talk show about. us the dark side. Chris. Yeah, let me let me talk about a bad experience um, or an experience that was bad at the time, but has continued to resonate with me in a, in a way that I think will ultimately be positive for me. When my first semester here, my first year here, when I was just figuring out what it was like to be at Bethel, it was like to be a professor at a Christian school. You know, I had spent a I had spent a few years teaching at Ohio State where. It certainly, you certainly were entitled to talk about your faith, but there was absolutely zero culture of doing that. Mm-hmm. And it being a state school and me being a graduate student, any sort of uh, focus on, on faith learning integration would have been frowned upon, if not openly derided. So um, I didn't So I didn't really do much of that. And when I got here, thinking about what it meant to like, integrate faith and in, in scholarship and, and faith and teaching was, was novel. And really refreshing, but also really scary. And I had a student, um, who, again, who I won't identify, but who had kind of who's a who's a major in our department, who studied politics, and who had kind of come to the position of Christian anarchism, mm-hmm. and who basically decided that all of politics was fallen, all of politics was corruptive, and all of politics should be avoided by by uh, essentially a neo-anabaptist kind of perspective. 
and we're having these long conversations with a student um, and some pretty pointed ones about why they were studying what they were studying. And they ultimately said, I regret it. I, re- I regret being a political science major. I regret hmm. studying these things. Uh, if I had to do it over again, I would have I'd be a sociologist or, or something else. I still care about humanity. I still care about how people relate to each other. I still care about problems in the world. I just don't think politics has any meaningful way to solve that. And trying to respond to someone who is, who, um, who rejected the discipline entirely really got me forcing me to think about what is my role here? What am I trying to do? What am I, how am I trying to prepare students? If I was at a, a secular institution, I think I could have just said, well, I wash my hands of you. There's some, there's, there's another place for you. Let a thousand flowers bloom, and I'll deal mm-hmm. with people who care about politics. But I really feel like I don't have that option in a place like this, and mm-hmm. I have to reach out to students. I ha- part of my job has to be selling students who are otherwise going to be accountants and nurses and uh, um, physical trainers and other kinds of people on why politics should matter to them. And that student hit that home for me more than almost any other huh. has. Wow. That's a cool. That's a cool, interesting story. Even yeah. if it's not uh, the you know the triumphant story. Like yeah, there's no there's no yeah. success welcome. That student graduated from Bethel with deeply disillusioned about politics, and as yeah. far as I know, still is. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, I want to. We're we're. I, I've used a lot of your time already. Oh, that's okay. Um, but I want to. I want to hit some of the the more kind of speed roundy questions, which aren't really speed roundy questions. But, I've already told you though. I really liked Quiz Bowl, and so I, right. I was looking so. forward to this. I, I just wish there was a buzzer. <laughs> Actually, yes, I have. I have a series of trivia questions for you. Excellent. As well. no. Excellent. Um, so th- this is the things that I want to sort of ask everyone. So yeah. thinking about you as a teacher, how you think about education. If you were to design your ideal school or your ideal curriculum. Um, whichever is easier to kind of imagine, what might that look like? My ideal school or my ideal curriculum. Yeah. Uh, so you got to be in charge of molding minds more broadly and, and sort of design it. What would that? What would it look like? Uh, it has to have certain components that have really resonated with me, and so I, I would put um, within the academic sphere. Uh, there has to be a, an emphasis on the liberal arts, and there has to be an emphasis on. Um, on reading literature and learning how to read things deeply. Uh, I don't know. Um, we could talk about pedagogical practices and how to instill within um, within first-year students that notion, but technology is pushing us away from reading deeply. It's allowing us to access information much more efficiently, and that's an enormous power. Think about like, when you and I were in school and we still use card catalogs, right? Oh yeah. And then yeah. eventually we had computerized card catalogs, and that was life changing. But like that's that's a that's a foreign world to yeah. our students who for whom uh, getting outside the internet database is a, is a hard thing. So, um, how do you teach people who are used to Twitter and used to texting to read something deeply? How do you get them to read Hegel? How do you get them to read uh, Foucault? And I think that learning to learning to marinate in something hard is, is really powerful. And I want, want to do that early. And then and then a sort of a commitment to the liberal arts tradition. I think you need it to be residential mm-hmm. and probably smaller than, maybe smaller than Bethel is now. You'd need some kind of a, in an idealized world, you need some kind of a closer-knit community. The, the thing about that, I talked about my, the usual suspects in my mm-hmm. undergraduate. The thing that made that work was we weren't all equally good students, but we all made each other better because there was enough of this tight-knit social comparison 
that was still friendly and but competitive and friendly. Right. That pushed us all to try a little bit harder. Sure. And sure. I'd love. Well, to and and you talked with each other presumably. So presumably, all the time. like as if you'd you argue were, in you, class, you'd go to lunch and keep arguing about class right. at lunch. And as you were reading something difficult, like Foucault or something like that, like it wouldn't be well. Let's wait to see what the teachers like. Well, what, what did you think about yeah. this, or what? Or what was that all about? Yeah. Which is an okay question, mm-hmm. as long as you don't stop with what was that all about. Yeah. Like that's to me, that's the problem. Is students? I feel like they get far enough where they can identify. Here's something I don't understand. And and the, to me, the tragedy and heartbreak is when they sort of figure when they stop with, well, I guess I'm not going to understand. I guess I'll that. never know. Instead of, well, let's. That's no. what we need to There's chase. A way that to down. know like, that. That's the beginning. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And. Um, I don't, I'm sure there's other elements to that to that curriculum that I would want. Uh, part of it, I think, needs to be um, experiential. And I've talked about simulation. And one of the things I like, to, one of the methodologies or pedagogies I like to use in classes, is doing simulations and, and doing experiential games and things. And I actually just played a uh, played a game right before this. We started recording with some of my intro to IR students and allowed them a chance, show them what. Um, neoliberal institutionalism is like by letting them play rock paper scissors and and vote people off the island if they didn't like the way they were playing hmm. um, and what that looks like and how and how states become pariah states in, a, in an otherwise a system that forms cooperative systems and so I like ideas like that and so I would want to see more things like that within that within mm-hmm. that system too. Well, you you've talked before about sort of how you could blow simulations up to cross lines of classes and things like that. And I mean, by lines of classes, we mean like in a, in a liberal arts institution. Right. Exactly. So what would it look like to have a simulation that, or, or some kind of a game that students experience that covers not just their political science classes, but also invites nursing majors in from a, to, to offer like a medical perspective and invites business majors in to, inv- to, uh, to allow for like a, a financial fiduciary perspective and builds all of these within the same kind of game. Um, you know, we like these immersive environments in video games, and, and I'm a, and I'm a gamer, and I've uh, uh, we've kind of alluded to that a little bit too. Uh, but the best games are ones that have sort of a depth of of information and allow you to play it in multiple different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the you know you don't want to be uh, a wizard. Well, you can be a warrior, or you can be mm-hmm. uh, what well, and that kind of thing. And well, giving people a chance to do those same kinds of things in learning experiences right. becomes, uh, I think, a really powerful tool. And what's interesting thinking about about video games in this too, like when we were kids. The very rare video game, but the best was a cooperative video game. Yes, there wasn't many where you played simultaneously with somebody mm-hmm. on the same team, and now that's something which is which is I mean that happens a lot yes. more because you have yep. online communities and you can yep. do those kind of things. So th- so I mean the the idea of what if a game isn't about me beating you, but you and I and our different expertise and these people and their entirely different expertise right. coming together to try to. Maybe not solve a problem, but to address a problem because right. there may not be a solution, but there, but but it needs to be addressed. Yeah, you know, and that's what the world looks like, right? Exactly. At its best, yeah. right? So, so that that cooperative idea, I think, is really is really significant. Yes. Um. So, the other sort of speed roundy things. Mm-hmm. Um, media book recommendations. If you were to recommend uh, a, a book. And then a piece of media it could be another book or something sure, else. Sure, sure. Like, and it's not again, it's not your favorite book. It's not the most important book or the best book, but like, this thing hel- helps explain me. This thing helps explain me. Yeah, like so. If you were to We'd, say, Sam, if you read this, like, you'd get some insight into 
something about me. It doesn't need to explain you in total, in total right, but like right. this thing gets you partway there. Can I, do, can I do more than one? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so here's two. Um, this one, is the internet. We can be totally expansive, right? Okay, all right. So the, uh, the one is going to make me sound more... Uh, uh, they sound, they, both of these have potential to sound a little pretentious, and so I... Uh, this please, question leads to that, though. Right. It begs that. It okay. begs you to be pretentious. So... Because um, if you're not pretentious, then you're like hipster pretentious. Yeah, please know that I don't read the, this stuff all the time, but one of the books that I have loved as an adult is Foucault's Pendulum, which is by Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco is an Italian author. He's a semiologist uh, or semiotician. Um, and uh, Foucault's Pendulum is a is a book about these three publishers, who it's it's kind of like Dan Brown if uh, if if the story was was more like was more cerebral. So it's these three publishers who are always getting these crackpot theories about. Um, you know about cults and conspiracies of various kinds, and they decided to. This is in the, this is written in like the early '80s, and so it's, computers are just taking off. And so one of the guys gets a computer and decides that he's going to feed all of these conspiracies into a computer. Well, the computer they just do it as a joke, but the computer itself starts spitting back out like this master conspiracy. And all the conspiracists who write all of these manuscripts that torment these guys become convinced the computer itself is the key to unlocking these master conspiracies that they have all been like chipping away at. And so these publishers unwittingly become sort of hunted by uh, all of these conspiracists. And it, and the question then becomes, are some of the conspiracies real because we make them real? Hmm. Or are they, um, or are they real in and of themselves? Or um, is it all just a big joke that's gone horribly awry? And the reason I like that is it goes back to some of the things we've been talking about today. Uh, there's all of these deep mythologies that sort of converge within this sort of notion of, of uh, scientific rationalism, of, of, this, you know, this, of this veneer of you know, the world really is as it is. And yet all of these, these stories keep creeping in and impinging upon that. And, and so reality gets blurred in the, in the, in the story. And so I really like mm-hmm. that. I like it for that kind of way that makes you think. Um, this tells you something about how I teach. The other book I, I, I really like, um, is, or other book I'll recommend, is called Sophie's World. And it's Sophie's World is a, is a novel about the history of philosophy, which sounds dreadful. But this, uh, this girl starts getting letters in the mail. She's it's written from this, this perspective of this young girl. And she gets, starts getting letters in the mail. Um, which you start unpacking some mysteries, and I won't spoil it, but she has some mysteries in her life. And it starts to provide some answers to mysteries, but in order to understand these mysteries, she has to essentially march through the, the history of Western philosophy. So she starts out with, with Plato, and she ends up in the, in the 20th century with some answers. Hmm. And um, it's a very cool narrative way of telling... Um, Basically, telling the history of philosophy in a, in a in a pretty sort of straightforward, linear way, but doing it in a way that sort of ties those things together, but also makes them very personalized, and that maybe tells you something about the kind of professor I'd like to be. Hmm. That's fantastic. Well, we are um, we are running um, short of time, or okay. we've been going a long time. I'd, okay. I don't know. Do you want to make a guess at where we're at if if you haven't looked? Um, I have not looked, and I'll guess a buck fifteen, but I could be wrong. Pretty close. We're we're an hour twenty-two. So oh wow, okay. Yeah, so so right. we've we've gone pretty far. I do need to to say before we go because um, 
I'm going to say this in the introductions, which you won't hear when I record it. You can listen to it, obviously. Okay. But, so anybody who's hearing this now has already heard the introduction. But um, I'm excited because this week I'm going to be recording two of these. I'm mm-hmm. recording with you and then with Amy Poppinga on Wednesday. Excellent. And, and if there are two professors at Bethel who I'm, like, buying stock in, it's the two <laughs> of you. Like, the, you, you're people who are very close friends of mine, but also people who I see sort of in the ascent. Like, like, like I just – I'm excited about – where your careers are at right now. I'm really excited about where they're going to be at five years from now. So, oh, thanks. You know, now that now that sort of the uh, the Sarah Shady and Chris Garrett stocks have paid off some of those dividends, I'm, <laughs> I'm buying stock in, in the two of you because I think you guys uh, you guys are both really spectacular in some different ways. So I'm excited to... Well, if I end up any way like, like Garrett's or Shady, I'll be doing quite well. There you go. There you go. Well, that. this has been a delight, Chris. Thanks so much. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths, the cinnamon now.